This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Uh, well, good morning, Trinity. For those of you that might not know me, uh, my name is Kyle Colbertson. I'm the pastoral intern here at Trinity. Uh, and if you don't know what that means, nobody else does either, so don't worry about it. Um, we can talk about it later. Uh, but there is a reason. Um, but I am excited to be able to with, be with you all this morning as we continue in our study on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We've been in the book of Ephesians for the last few weeks since the start of the new year. We've talked through uh, chapters 1 and chapter 2, and we're going to be jumping into chapter 3 this morning. Um, and the letter that we've talked about is a letter from Paul to this church at Ephesus. It's a letter that follows some of, other, some of Paul's other letters and structure. It has a beginning basis in its, his doctrine, his theology, what the gospel is, and then later on he moves into more applied theology, how that affects our everyday lives. Um, and this beginning of chapter 3 is kind of interesting because it seems as if Paul's about to start off into a prayer for the Ephesians and move into that applied theology. But in the middle of verse 1, he kind of jumps off, derails his thought process in order to dive back into what he just talked about. And the reason Paul that does this, I believe, is not just because he's a little bit ADD like myself, but Paul actually is doing this because I think he foresees some of the questions people have. So he's just talked about this church, a church that is comprised not just of Jews, but of Gentiles. It's a church that is meant to be unified, like we talked about last week. And these questions of church bring up a lot of other questions in our own mind. It's similar to the Ephesians. When you start speaking about church, there's so many questions that people have. The most important of which, I believe, is why does church even matter? And I believe this is what Paul is trying to answer this morning. See, for me, I, this question hits home because I have a friend that I have wrestled with for the last two years of why church matters. He is someone that grew up in the church. He is a devout believer of the Lord, but he was kind of burned by the church a few years back. Um, and so he has been someone that has continued to tell me, I don't need a church. I have, can read my Bible. I spend time in prayer. My relationship with the Lord is fine. Why would I need church? And I think this question is something that a lot of us have asked at one time or another. I realize we are all here. But I think many of us have wondered, why does the church really matter? And this morning, as we look at Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, I think we're going to see that Paul tells us that the church matters for two reasons. Number one, the church matters because it is central to the gospel. And number two, I hope we see that Paul tells us that the church matters because it is the very means by which the gospel is communicated. So if you'll stand with me this morning out of reverence for God's word, we're going to read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, 
so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. This is God's word. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. May he bless it for you and for me. You may be seated. So the first thing that we see that Paul is talking about here is we're going to see that Paul is summing up that the gospel has the church at the middle, that the church is central to the gospel. And we see that as we look through what Paul's talking about in verses 4 through 6. He mentions the mystery of Christ that is through the gospel and has now been revealed. And talking about this mystery, we have to realize that that word has a little bit of different nuance than we have today. So today when we talk about a mystery, we're thinking like it's something that you work really hard through, you can kind of figure it out in the end, and you get there. Like if you ever watch National Treasure, if you just simply go and get the Declaration of Independence, flip it over, follow the clues, walk through it, you figure out what they're talking about. You figure out the answer to the mystery. But this is not what mystery meant to an ancient Greek audience. The word mystery to them was something that was fully unknowable, that you could work as hard as you wanted and you would never figure it out unless a deity, here for Paul, God, revealed it to you. But once it's revealed, it is made clear. And so this is what Paul is telling us is what we talked about last week, that the church is a unified people of both Jew and Gentile. Paul's saying that this is what has now been made known in Christ, that it was not known before. And I think that makes us think, like, what is Paul talking about? Because Gentiles are littered throughout the Old Testament. We see time and time again Christ speaking through his word that Gentiles were meant to be a part of this church. We read it even in our Old Testament passage this morning, God's covenant promise to Abraham. It is a promise that is meant for all nations. Those would also be Gentiles. But the reality of what Paul's saying is not just that they're allowed to come in, but that Jews and Gentiles are allowed fully to have the full blessings. They're allowed to be what he calls the three promises of being fellow heirs, being members of the same body, and being partakers of the promise. You see, the problem is this wall of hostility that Zach talked about last week in Ephesians 2.14 was not just always a wall that was just the law. There was literally a wall in many of the worshiping sections that would be similar to this one over here. It's a great sermon illustration that I did not put up. But if, it would be as if that the real worship were going on inside of there, that only Jews could go through and they would get to really see and be closer to God, that the Gentiles would be left out here, the rest of us, and you can kind of be a part of our community but you're not really full participants. It's almost as if the, the law that was written by the U.S. government in the 1800s that said separate but equal. And anyone with a brain realizes that that means anything but equal. If you're separated apart, you're not good enough to be one. But Paul says that's not true. The revelation of this mystery of the gospel is that we are all together given this ability to be fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise. And while those sentences are kind of cool, the little phrases that Paul gives, they're actually all one word in each of them. And Zach talked about this a couple weeks ago, that Paul kind of smushes words together to make new words. And this is kind of what he's doing here, because each of them starts with the same prefix. And we're not going to get into the Greek nuances, but the word simply means together. So really what Paul is saying, that together, the revelation is that together we are fellow heirs. Together we are members of the same body, and together we are partakers of the promise through the gospel. 
See, together we are heirs because when we come to Christ, when we are known by Him and known as His people, we are given the opportunity to be children of the Most High God. We are given the opportunity to be fellow heirs and people that are heirs of this unsearchable riches that he talks about in verse 8. These unfathomable riches, more riches than you could ever imagine is what he's talking about. And it's these spiritual riches that are something that comes only through Christ and they are for Jew and Gentile. But not only are we together fellow heirs, but together we are members of the same body. You see, when Christ came and sacrificed himself for us, it was so that he could build a body to himself. It talks about it other places in the Bible of it is a temple that is the church, that is meant as a place for God to dwell. And so each of us, regardless of our background, are being built together as blocks and to make this temple. We're being built on the foundation that is the apostles and the prophets that are ultimately built upon the cornerstone that is Christ, being brought together as one body. And then we're also together in the fact that we are partakers of the promise. And this promise that Paul is speaking of here is actually the promise that Christ gave his followers. The promise of the presence of the Holy Spirit as a helper and as one that would indwell each believer. See, regardless of your background, you are given the opportunity when you come to Christ to have the very Spirit of God indwell you. It is this very Spirit that is the one that makes you more like Christ, the one that is transforming you as you become a part of his people, one that is creating in you a new person, a new humanity together, and is signing and sealing you within that community forever. That is the opportunity you have, but it is an opportunity that we see together. And so Paul is making this reference. He's telling us that apart from the church, you're missing parts of the gospel. You're missing these blessings because they're meant to be blessings in community. These blessings are something that Christ not only saved you out of sin and death, but he saved you into an adoption of a new community, a new humanity. And one pastor put it this way. He said, the gospel which some of us proclaim is much too individualistic. The good news of the unsearchable riches of Christ, which Paul preached, is that he died and rose again not only to save sinners like me, although he did, but also to create a single new humanity, not only to redeem us from sin, but to adopt us into God's family, not only to reconcile us to God, but also to reconcile us to one another. And he goes on to say at the end, how dare we push to the circumference that which God has placed at the center? How dare we push to the edges something that God has made so central to the gospel in the church? You see, is this what you think of when you think of the gospel? Is this what you think of when you think of the church? Does the church have any influence over what you proclaim to be the gospel? Or do you, when you tell people what the gospel is, it's, well, Christ died for me. Yes, Christ died for you, but Christ died for so much more than you. Christ died so that you could become a part of this community, a part of this new humanity, this new creation through the Spirit. You see, if you stop short and you pigeonhole the gospel into just being about your individual life, you miss the beauty of the riches of the, that Christ has for you. You miss the unsearchable nature of these riches. It would be as if you're walking along a road and you stumble upon this wonderful gem. And the gem is beautiful, it's magnificent, it's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen, you can't take your eyes off it. And you want to hold it, you know that it's more valuable than anything you've ever seen, it's more valuable than anything you could ever spend, it's setting you up forever. But if you stop and only focus on this gem, and you miss the fact that it's sitting on top of a treasure that goes beyond your eye can see, it goes deeper in the ground than you could ever dig up, it is riches that are full of gems and rubies and rhinestones and gold and silver and money and everything you could ever imagine. You're missing all of this 
absolute vast wealth because you're stuck focused on this one piece. You're missing the fact that these riches are not just for you individually, but they are riches that can be spent for your children, for your children's children, for generations from now, for your neighbor, for your coworker, for your friend, for all whom God would call back to himself. Those are the true unsearchable riches that are found in the gospel, and they are only found when we look at the reality that Christ wanted it to be a new people, a new humanity visible as the church. The church is central to the message of the gospel. And Paul says that not only is the church central to the message of the gospel, but the church is actually the means by which the gospel is communicated. Look again at verse 10 when he says that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't use the word manifold in my vocabulary. And so if you do, great. But for me, I need to kind of like talk through what this means. So manifold is a word that could be looked at as many-sided or multifaceted. And when we use it as many-sided, we're seeing that the church displays the many-sided wisdom of God. And this is not just talking about the fact that God can see everything, he knows everything, he's omniscient and sees things from all sides, because he does. But this many-sided wisdom as displayed by the church is simply by the fact that the church is many-sided. The church is multifaceted. This church is a unified body that is amidst such immense diversity. It's something that only God could do, and it proclaims his wisdom and glory when you look at it. Because if you look at some of the smartest minds around in the world today, what do so many of them try to achieve? So many people trying to go after Nobel Peace Prizes, so many people trying to stop wars, so many people trying to bring communities together. And yet, what does our world look like? Despite these brilliant individuals, there's still war, there's still strife, there's still division among society constantly. We look at it time and time and time again. And yet in the church, we see just as many diverse people as there is in the world around us. There's people from every nation, there's people speaking every language, there's people that are male and female, parent and child, rich and poor, slave and free. Such diversity, all united underneath one name that is Jesus Christ. Only God is capable of bringing so much diversity into unity in the church. And so this unity is what proclaims and screams to the world his manifest or his manifold goodness, his manifold wisdom. Think of it this way, for any kids here, if any of you like to play with Legos, and I was to tell you that I will give you as many Legos as you would ever need to build a masterpiece. Do you think you could do it? But there's one catch. I'm only going to give you Legos that are blue, and I'm only going to give you Legos that are four dots by two dots. Every Lego is going to look the exact same. Now, how is your masterpiece going to turn out? The reality is, I don't care how good you are at Legos, it's going to look nothing but a big blue blob. That's all I'm going to see. But contrast that with if you've ever been to the Lego store in places like New York, I haven't been there in 10 years, and I can still remember the incredible structures that they have built in there. There's a giant green dragon that was going room to room above your head. There was a massive Hogwarts castle in this room. The next room is a life-size stormtrooper. You've got all these magnificent creations that just scream how great the builder was. But then think about those for a second. Each of these pieces was at one point tons and tons of Legos in a pile. It was just mass chaos. It was there to do nothing but create a mess. And this is what we look like if you look at the church individually. 
We're just a pile of Legos. All of us look different. None of us really fit together if you're looking at it. But if you take someone like the builder that is God and you be able to put them and mold them together to build this temple for himself through his people, build this new humanity, he knows where to put each and every one of us. He knows how to bring us together to create something magnificent. And it is something that screams nothing but how great our God is. Because we're all just a little piece that can do nothing on our own without him. It just screams how great and wonderful is our God. But notice who Paul says it proclaims this to. He says that this manifold wisdom of God is proclaimed to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So who are these people? Well, if you read on in the letter to the Ephesians, you're going to get to chapter 6 where Paul brings up this idea again. And it's pretty clear that he's not talking about our rulers today. He's not talking about any king, not talking about any prime minister, no congresswoman, no congressman. There is no one on our earth that he's talking about in this capacity. Because this heavenly realm for Paul is the spiritual realm. And so this spiritual realm, these rulers of this dark time, are actually demons. That's who Paul's talking about here. And one quick caveat, because our culture has really portrayed demons and angels in a way that doesn't really fit biblically. See, we, we have this belief that angels and demons are omniscient. Like, they're just like God. They know what's going on. They know from time past. They know what's going on before. They know what's going to end up. Well, the reality is the Bible doesn't speak of them in this way. The Bible speaks of them seeing and looking at God's eternal plan unfolding just like we are. And Paul uses this moment here to say that the real reason that the demons look at us, the church, is that we are the reason that it proclaims their end. That when they look at the church and what God has done, they realize his manifold wisdom, they realize his eternal plan, that we as the church are what actually proclaims to the demons that your time is coming to an end, your rule is falling, and Jesus has won. That's what we communicate when we are together as a church. We proclaim the gospel outside of ourselves. And this shouldn't be much of a surprise that Paul says this because he's really just echoing the words of Jesus to his apostles in John 13, 34 and 35. When Jesus tells them before he goes to the cross, he says, if you love one, you need to love one another as I have loved you, and that it is by this that they will know that you are my disciples. It is by this that the world knows that you love Jesus. Yes, we are to love people outside the church. Yes, we are to proclaim the truth of Scripture to those that don't believe it. Absolutely. But what Jesus and Paul joins him in here saying is that actually your best tool of evangelism, the greatest way that you can proclaim to the world who God is, is by loving the people that are your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's by leaning into this family in a way that we proclaim the love of God through how we interact with one another. And this is what the church is meant to proclaim. And there's been times throughout history in different places that the church has done this exceptionally. There's been times where it's been proclaimed from the mountaintops that Jesus is Lord, and yet there's other times where it's been quieter than a whisper in the wind by how we love one another. When I think of times where the church has lived this faith out well, I think of times in history of the martyrs in the first century church. There's actually a story of a Roman historian that tells of all these Christians being murdered in Colosseums all across the Roman Empire. And he speaks of one specific instance where these Christians are being fed to lions, and there's a group of them together. And yet when one lion jumps out to maul someone, somebody else jumps in front of them. And yet another lion jumps out to maul someone, and somebody else jumps in front of them. And these Christians are sacrificing their lives for one another. And each of them doesn't see the fruits of this labor. All of them end up dying. But the reality is that they loved each other enough that it was speaking to the world around them. 
See, this historian notes that the people in the crowd are actually looking on and going, oh, how they love one another. It's a love that proclaims the glory of God even when you don't realize. Similarly, Paul here, Paul speaks that he is a prisoner for the Gentiles, for the people he's writing to. And he's not trying to curry up some some sad feelings like, oh, pity me, Paul, because I'm in prison because of you. Because he is. And yet Paul says he's happy to do this. It is God's grace that he's able to do it. It is for the church's glory, is what he ends this section with. See, Paul is more than happy to be able to do whatever he can to love his brothers and sisters, to proclaim Christ's gospel. And Paul will never know and never would have known the immense stretches that he would influence through his love in prison. See, we're still reading his letter today. It's still moving forward. The gospel is still being proclaimed because of the great love that he had. Now, when we think about these great examples, what do we think of our love today in the church? Now, obviously, none of us are sacrificing our lives for one another. None of us are having to go to prison for Trinity Church. That is not the reality of the world we live in. But there are so many different ways that we can love and serve the church, and these ways go on and speak and proclaim the gospel in ways that you may not realize. For those of you that give money, think about those that tithe. Tithing 10% is a hard thing to do in our society. The reality is we give money to the church, and it might mean that I don't get to go on the vacation I want to. It might mean that my family doesn't get the car that we would like to have. It doesn't mean that we get to buy the Christmas presents for our kids that we would love to give them. And for many of you, that might mean the same, but the reality is that this money goes and proclaims the gospels in ways that we don't realize. It goes and shows beyond our walls. It goes with all of our ministry partners. It goes and proclaims through our church plans. The gospel is being proclaimed in Puerto Rico because of everything that is given. We're thinking of it this way. Maybe sacrificing money isn't what is a sacrifice for you, but maybe you sacrifice your time eight Sundays a year in children's church. And you might be like, this isn't that much of a sacrifice, and it's not really doing a ton. I'm just kind of back here. But the reality is you're proclaiming the gospel to these kids. You're proclaiming the gospel not just to another generation, but you're proclaiming the gospel to every single person they're going to meet for the rest of their life. The reality is the gospel is going to go so much further because of your sacrifice eight Sundays a year. Or think of it this way. There's a Sorry, there's a way that my family has been influenced more recently from all of you loving us in such great ways is through making meals for my family. Because you understand, my wife just had a baby recently and no one trusts me to make dinner every night. And that is valid. But the reality is we have seen your love pour out in so much ways and bringing us food time and time again. And it is something that has truly blessed my family, but it has proclaimed the gospel in ways you don't know. See, my daughter is not just looking at this love but we're able to talk to other friends about it. We have friends in the United States right now that just had a kid about the same time, uh, a little bit before us, and they did it apart from a church community. And their difference of their postpartum time is vastly different than our experience because of you, because of the love of the church. And so we're able to proclaim and brag on our church about how great the gospel is able to go forward, and it's able to proclaim the gospel to these people that you don't know, all because of how you've loved us. And so there are so many other ways that we could talk about this morning that really is us leaning in and loving one another, and it's serving, and the gospel goes forth. But like Paul, I also realize that this probably brings up a question, and so I might need to derail my thoughts for a second. Because I'm sure somebody is thinking, are you saying that if I'm not a part of the church that I'm not saved? 
And I'm not necessarily saying that. But I also don't have the best words for it, so I'm actually going to quote somebody that many of you know by the name of Jeff Heiser. (laughs) See, Jeff said it this way, and I can't say it any better. He said that, yes, technically, you can be a Christian and not be a part of the church in the same way that you can technically be married and never go home. What Jeff's getting at is the reality is that if I told you I'm married and I never experience the blessings of that marriage, if I never go home and kiss my wife, if I never spend time with my kids, if I never lived in the same house as my family for the entirety of the time I'm married, what does that say about my marriage? You probably have a lot of questions about what I believe in my marriage and what I really think of marriage. Now think of it this way. If you are to say, like my friend does, that he loves the Lord, that his relationship is good, But the reality is he's refusing to be around the people that Christ also loves, the people that Christ also died for, these other people that God loves, and he's saying, I don't need them. And yet that's what Christ really wants to do is to bring him into this people, create him as a new humanity. But if you refuse to be a part of them, it exposes a lot about your belief of what you were saved for. You're saying, I don't fully trust God's eternal plan. I don't fully believe that his wisdom is manifold. I don't fully believe that he's got it all figured out. That's what it communicates. And so as we close this morning, I want us to think about 2023. January is the great time of looking forward and making hopes and dreams and goals for the rest of the year, whether we keep them or not. But I want us to think about the reality that we are all being built together as one church, as one body for the glory of God. And I want us to think and challenge ourselves as we start thinking about challenges in nutrition and challenges in what we're doing, exercise, start thinking about our challenges of how we can love one another. What does that look like for you to lean into this community? Maybe for you, it's finding the reality that this body of Christ is meant to be unified. Maybe it means pursuing forgiveness and peace with another brother or sister that you don't see eye to eye to, realizing that God's glory and wisdom is manifold. Or maybe for you, it means leaning in in a way that you want to serve and love this community. Maybe for you, it's just jumping into this community. Maybe it's coming and joining a community group. Maybe it's finally attending a membership class and saying, I'm in, I'm a part, and I want to be here with the body while I'm here in Puerto Rico. Or maybe it means serving as a greeter, a children's worker. Maybe it's simply having someone over to your house for dinner and sharing what you have with them to say, I love you as a brother and sister in Christ. Church, what ways can we look to lean in in this next year? In ways that we would proclaim that God is good, that he is one, that we can scream it out to each other, we can encourage one another, we can scream it out and proclaim the gospel to the community on this island, can we scream it out and proclaim to the demons that they have lost, that Christ has won, that we are his and we have already gotten the victory because of what he has done by giving us a full boldness and confident access to God's throne himself through Jesus alone. This is why the church matters. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it is revealed to us in a way that we don't need to search anymore for truth because we have truth through the Bible. That when we look around the world, we see people grasping for truth and yet we have it in what you have written and given to us. God, we thank you that this Revelation of truth is something that means that all of us can come to you regardless of our background, regardless of where we grew up, regardless of anything else other than the fact that you chose us before the foundation of the world. 
Lord, what a blessing it is to know that, Lord, but allow us to not stop there, but to look further into your blessings of your people. Lord, let us continue to experience the sanctification that comes with your Spirit, that your Spirit would continue to move through each and every one of us, molding us towards one another in a way that we would look more like Christ. In a way that we would look more like Christ, not just because it's who we want to pursue, but because we want it to ring throughout all of the world. That we want to proclaim to even the spiritual beings that you, O oh God, are great. You, O oh God, are in charge. You, O oh God, are all that we want to proclaim, all that we seek and you alone are our victory. And so, Lord Jesus, as we look towards this next year, might we all find these ways that you have given us. Find these brothers and sisters and love on them in such a way that it is such an outpouring of the love that you showered upon each and every one of us that we might see in more and new eyes how you are building us into your temple, into your bride, until the day that you come back for us and we are united forever with you. And it's in the name of our Lord and Savior we pray. Amen.